Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. So what are we doing here with all of this stuff? Bo is a deacon. He's been ordained. He's wearing vestments. I'm wearing vestments. These aren't the things we walk around in daily life. I don't go to the store wearing this, and Bo doesn't go to work wearing that. We put these on on Sundays when we come to church. When we do these things, this is a specific setting, a specific context. And the reason that we do these things here, that we light candles and that we burn incense and that we wear special things is because we believe we are in the very presence of God. And God is a king. God's more than a king. God is God. We don't have kings in America. We, uh, we had a whole revolution to get rid of a king. And so we don't really understand quite what the pomp and circumstance uh, intuition is that the people throughout the entire history of the world have had. I think that's something that maybe we're missing. I like our form of government in that it gives more power to more people and that we can live together and make decisions, but we are missing something that almost every society throughout the world in its history has um, intuitively discovered that it is good to have a king or a queen or a ruler invested with a certain amount of power, but also a certain amount of dignity and, and glory. I don't know if you've ever seen any uh, video recordings of the ceremonies of a royal wedding or of a royal coronation. It's been a really long time because Queen Elizabeth in England has been queen for a long time, so no one has seen what a royal coronation looks like um, except for old, old video. But if you watch a royal wedding or a royal coronation, you'll see a lot of processing, a lot of people dressed in special garments, a lot of special music, a very specific format to the way that it's done. Um, it's a ceremonial. It isn't done willy-nilly. It isn't everyone just coming in and sitting and someone saying, hey, uh, we're going to get this started. It's much more formal. It's much more solemnized. And if that's what we do for human monarchs, if that's what we're accustomed to saying, yeah, this is, this is an occasion worthy of this sort of pomp and circumstance and solemnity and celebration, why in the world wouldn't we extend the same, at least, to God coming in his presence? But aren't we always in the presence of God? Isn't God everywhere? Yes, we believe that God is everywhere. We believe that God is everywhere because God is everything. God is existence as such, and the entire world was created by God and in God. So there's nowhere you can go, as the psalmist says. You can't go to the heights of heaven, you can't go to the depths of hell and not be in the presence of God. So why is this special? Well, we be believe that God is specially present here in this church, in this temple, in this place, through the sacrament of his body and blood. Now, why do we believe God is present in the sacrament of the bread and wine that we understand to be his body and blood? Well, because he proved that he already didn't despise this world and its matter. God, who is transcendent, who is beyond creation, became a part of creation. 
he came into this world and took on the matter that he created. Isn't that crazy? God created matter, something apart from him, distinct from him. God isn't matter. He has no body. And he created this world. But then, through a mystery that we can't speak, he entered this world and took on that matter. He joined it to himself. God became a man. And so if God establishes the principle that I will take on matter as a part of me, I will be present with you in this special way, why can't he continue to be present with us in a special way? We believe that the church has always held the doctrine that in the Eucharistic bread and wine, God is present in his very flesh and blood. He makes himself present to us in this way. He even said so in the sixth chapter of John. This is my body. This is my blood. Whoever eats and drinks of this has life. A lot of people turned away because they couldn't handle that. It took the church a while to be able to articulate what was going on. It always believed the mystery, but over centuries we have learned to not just articulate it, but to reverence this mystery as it ought to be reverenced. So is it ridiculous to say that God is in a box on the altar? Is that ridiculous? I don't know. Was it ridiculous to say that God was in a box carried around by the Hebrews in the Old Testament? A lot of people might have thought that was ridiculous, but the Hebrews believed it because God told them it. God gave them the instructions for the ark. He said, put these things in it, build a temple for me. Well, first build a tabernacle. In fact, surround it with ceremony because you are about to experience a king like you've never experienced. I want this built in a certain way. I want levels of priests and, and servers in my tabernacle and in my temple. I want incense. I want vestments. I want gold raiment. I want the whole nine. Here's how to do it. And once you've done it, then guess what? I will dwell in that box. I'll dwell in the box that you built me. I'll dwell in the tabernacle. And he did. And they carried it around. And then they went to Jerusalem and they built him a bigger temple. And the presence of God through the, the Holy Spirit, like smoke, filled the temple so that no one could even stand up. God was letting them know, I am here. And the Hebrews, when they were faithful, they continued this style of worshiping God, of acknowledging we are in the presence and this ceremony befits the God who's coming to dwell with us. When they weren't faithful, God abandoned this. He didn't stick around because they didn't deserve it anymore. They had disobeyed him. They didn't do what he told them to do. They neglected the worship of the temple. They weren't faithful to him in their hearts and he left. They went into exile, they came back. There's a whole history there. By the time that Jesus was born into this world, there was another temple that had been built and people were going to the temple and doing all the liturgical stuff like they were supposed to, all the ceremony. They were trying to do it again, but no one was ever sure if God had re-inhabited the temple. They were behaving like he had, but there were, there were rabbis, there were teachers who suggested maybe he hadn't. After all, was there ever another giant cloud of smoke that filled the temple to, to prove it where no one could stand? What do you do? Well, you just keep going. Even Jesus went up to the temple to pray. He told parables about uh, the two men. This is the 11th Sunday after Trinity too. The gospel passage would be the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee going up to pray and, and basically uh, being proud of himself. And then the tax collector who knew he was a sinner standing in the back of the temple 
couldn't even raise his eyes up to where God's presence was supposed to be and just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And guess what? In that parable, Jesus says that man went back from the temple having been justified. So the temple was a good place. Jesus went there and he prayed. He taught. What was God's presence there in that special way? No one was totally sure. And then Jesus started saying things about himself that made people really uncomfortable. Things like, wherever I am, there is the presence of God. Things like, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. They thought they were talking, he was talking about the, the big building right beside him. He was talking about himself. Over and over, he would identify himself as the temple, the actual presence of God. And where did that Jesus, the actual presence of God, come from? How did he enter into this world? Through the ark. The ark bore him into this world. Just like God was in the ark, which bore him into the temple, Jesus was born into this world through the ark. The fathers of the church for centuries have identified Mary as the true ark. In fact, the ark back in the day, that was just a sign. It was just a pointer. It was a symbol. Mary was the fulfillment of what the ark was supposed to be. Here you have not just a box, but a human being containing not some articles of the community miraculously that God used for its salvation where God would then dwell roundabout on top of the ark. But you had Mary, a human being in which God physically dwelt. Mary is the burning bush. The burning bush was just a type. It was just a symbol. Mary was the true bush, the true thing, bit of matter that was able to bear the actual presence of God and not be consumed. I mean, it was neat that the burning bush could do that. But Mary not only bore the presence of God, she birthed the presence of God and then raised the presence of God as her son. She wasn't just the birth giver, she was the mother. The reason we have celebrations and solemnities like today, where all of our uh, texts are pointing toward this this reality is because of Jesus. This day is not about Mary. The feast is called the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But this feast is about Jesus. Because Mary is nothing without Jesus. Mary wouldn't exist without God. Mary's entire purpose in being born in this world was to bear God. So we honor her. Why? Because she bore God. Just because Jesus is the center, that doesn't mean that Mary isn't illumined by him. Her proximity, her, her job in salvation history was unique, and it's glorious. Why wouldn't we celebrate her? There's, there's a saying that it is impossible for anyone to love the mother of God more than Jesus himself. Don't be afraid to admire Mary, to be drawn to Mary, to look up to Mary, to want to be close to Mary. Because in wanting to be close to the mother of God, you are close to God himself. We cannot, we're not in danger of loving God more, loving Mary more than God, if we also love God. God wants us to love his mother. At the beginning of the service today, the introit, it's called the introit, the opening chant, it referenced the beginning of Psalm 45. This is a psalm that begins speaking about 
a divine king whose uh, divine throne endures forever. He's the fairest of the sons of men. Of course, he is the son of man. We know that God is also a son. The son of God is also the son of man. And his throne endures forever. And then he said that at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. And then the psalmist turns toward this queen and addresses her and says, Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Hear, O daughter, forget your people and your father's house. Who is her father's house? We heard in the gospel, this entire lineage, this lineage that Christ comes from, this lineage of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary's uh, lineage in turn when, when she uh, is married to Joseph. This is the whole lineage of Christ. God, Isaiah rightly asks, who can name the generations of God? No one. No one can name the generations of God in his Godhead because he has no generations, no one before him. But who can name the generations of God in the flesh? Well, the gospel writer can. He just did. That's, that's what we just heard. These are the generations that brought him to where he was. This was the preparation of the world, expecting the pinnacle, the point where salvation comes. This is where Eve and her curse is renewed and recovered by the new Eve and her blessing. Mary is told, forget your father's house. In the place of your father's, will be your sons. It's no longer that covenant, that old way. It's now the new way. Jesus is coming into the world and renewing creation. There is the old creation waiting for Christ. There is a new creation after Christ. Instead of your father shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name. This is still to the daughter. This is still to the queen, the psalmist says. I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations. Therefore, peoples will praise you forever and ever. Why? Because of her association with the king. She points us to him. Every time we look at Mary, she points us to Christ. Is Mary the greatest exception of all of humanity? No. She's the greatest example. She shows us that we can say yes to God. We can let God come into us. We can bear him in our hearts as she bore him in her womb. We can raise up Christ in our own lives so that we become more and more after his image as she raised him in her house and learn to become more and more like her own son. This is the lesson we learned from Mary. She points us to God. If we are ever without great examples of the faith, then we're lost. Me and Jesus, that doesn't work because it's not just Jesus. It's always Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit and the church. This is a community affair. It's a family affair. We're doing this together. And the nice thing about having family is you have people who are praying for you, people who are rooting for you, people who want you to succeed, people who you can look up to, people who you can be close to, people around you to make sure that you're never alone. This is what God desires of us. He wants us to have family. This is why we're here. This is the family. When we worship God in this ceremony, we are brought into his family. 
we become sons and daughters of God through adoption. We become, in fact, brothers and sisters of Christ. And if we are brothers and sisters of Christ, then guess who we have as our mother? The mother of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.